Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Pushing plasma, the U.S. grants emergency approval for convalescent plasma treatment for COVID-19. Tencent ticks higher. The WeChat owner stocks climb amid reports Trump's executive order may be limited. And double trouble. The U.S. Gulf Coast braces for storms Marco and Laura. It's Monday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. I hope you had a restful weekend and a good start to the week, depending on where you're coming from. As coming up on the show, we'll be talking the politics and the promise of blood plasma treatment for COVID-19 with the Mayo Clinic, the institution that's collected the most data, analysed it on the subject. Until then, President Trump's new plasma push and tech stock gains are helping lift stocks pre-market. Europe also higher, as you can see, Germany and France both gaining 2% plus tech, the dominant story in China as well, with the Shenzhen Stock Exchange relaxing rules for firms looking to go public on its new Chinext subsidiary, a potential challenge perhaps to the dominance of Shanghai's star market. But I think the key here is the fostering of a new generation of tech giant hopefuls. At a pivotal moment in time, of course, 18 tech stocks soaring more than 200% on their debuts today. A strong session, as I mentioned as well, for the WeChat owner Tencent amid reports that U.S. restrictions on the app may be less severe than initially feared. Feared all the details coming up while I get my teeth back in. Apple also up some 3% pre-market. The firm worth more than $2 trillion when trade kicks off today. Let's call it a Cupertino coup. Apple contributed more than half of the S&P 500's rise to records last week. Meanwhile, Tesla also up more than 4%. Yes, more than 4% pre-market. The more these tech titans rise, the greater the talk, of course, of stretched valuations and a lack of market breadth. This is interesting. Last week, losers outpaced winners by a two to one margin. And of course, all the while, the underlying economy continues to suffer. suffer. We'll step forward. Jay Powell, the Fed chair, speaking this week. He may need to be Powell the proactive yet again if economic trends soften further. Let's get to the drivers. Christine, quick, take it away from me because I simply cannot get my words out today. (laughs) I read an article over the weekend. It's just shocking. um, That said the top 10% of earners own some 87% of all stocks. And that was during the first quarter of this year. And the data came from no other than the Federal Reserve. Eye-watering. It really is. And it shows you that the stock market is not the overall economy. You keep hearing people talk about the White House in particular, V-shaped recovery. Well, the economic recovery does not look V-shaped. The stock market had a a V-shaped bounce back here. But you're hearing a lot of people talk about what's in store in the weeks ahead, especially bringing back to Powell, 
How frustrated must he be and must the Fed be uh, at the lack of action on the fiscal front from Congress? We do know the $600 a month a week in extra jobless benefits have been gone now. This is the fourth week in a row. This is entering the fourth week now. Um, and there will be maybe half that much could uh, get into some people's pockets um, for two or three weeks because of the president's action. But even then, Goldman Sachs says it's too little too late. There will be a big hit to personal income in August, and that will slow the recovery. Yeah, and it's bound to. I mean, when you have a gap in people's income to the tune of the numbers that we've been talking about, that's going to have an immediate impact on spending. And this is a spending-driven economy. Christine, talk to me about the K-shaped recovery. We've dealt with the alphabet soup, but I read about the K-shaped recovery over the weekend, whether you're talking about stock markets or the economy or the divergence between the two. This actually rung true for me in many ways. And me too, Julia. And I'm so glad you brought it up because you have seen probably in your own world, right, people who are recovering quite quickly because of the job they have or the ability to work from home and teach your kids from home. There are some people who have adapted into this uh, pandemic economy. There are others, particularly service sector workers, who have not. So think of that K-shape. Some people in the workforce recovering quickly and recovering nicely. Others actually going in the wrong direction. So actually widening the disparity. Of, of opportunity and outlook for workers while you have the economy recovering, it's definitely not the same for everyone. And it could even be worsening things. I mean, I think back to the, the 2008, 2009s uh, you know, financial crisis. And I remember one of the lessons from that crisis was um, there are some people who recovered quite nicely and quite quickly. And there are others. It took a decade. They were just getting back, uh, uh, getting back to, to, to even when this thing hit us now. Right. So it's just so unfair that this happens in the American economy. Um, there will be winners and losers. And I think you look at at the workforce in particular, it feels like a K-shaped recovery. Yeah, and it's a lesson that uh, Jay Powell at the Federal Reserve knows and the uh, policymakers there have learned and lawmakers simply haven't because allowing us to go through this period of weeks and weeks and weeks without further support is just exacerbating the length of time we have to uh, recover here. Christine Romans, thank you so much for that. Nice to see you. Yeah. Donald Trump touting what he calls a powerful therapy to treat COVID-19 patients. It uses plasma from the blood of people who've had the virus and since recovered. It just got emergency approval for widespread use, but just how effective is it? Elizabeth Cohn is here and definitely the best person to talk us through this. Tens of thousands of people have been studied, but we go back to this idea once again of a randomized test to get results that we can say this is um, a, a solution, a treatment that has great efficacy. Can we say that at this stage, Elizabeth? No, we can't. This was not a randomized trial. There were so many issues with this trial. It's almost hard to know where to start. The only way to do this is to get super nerdy on you, Julia, but I know that you can handle it. So I'm about to get super nerdy. The first point that I'm going to make is that in this trial, they had two different death rates that they could look at. And the Trump administration chose to look at the less reliable death rate, the one that was less reliable because it looked better. So they chose a less reliable death rate, but the number made them look better. And so let's take a look at exactly what happened. If we take a look at these numbers, the Trump administration says there was a 35% decreased death rate when people were treated with convalescent plasma earlier versus later in their hospitalization. But that's when you look at how many people died seven days after getting treatment, just seven days out. When you look at it, 30 days out, which of course is much more reliable. It's more time. It's more
more data, that that death rate was only decreased by 23.6%. So it was still decreased, but it wasn't as good. It is interesting to note that they chose the better rate, the one that had the better optics, the one that had the better drama, but in fact was less reliable. And Julia, this next point is actually even more important. That decreased death rate Could it be because people got convalescent plasma earlier in their hospitalization? Sure, that could explain it. But you know what else could explain it? If they were getting convalescent plasma earlier in their their hospitalization, they probably were getting other things earlier too. Were they getting steroids earlier? We know that those help. Were they getting remdesivir earlier? We know that that antiviral helps. So you and I have talked a lot about cause and effect just because plasma got there early and those people had a lower chance of dying. Well, what else were they getting earlier? You don't need to be a medical genius to know that getting treatments earlier is always is almost always better than getting them later. Julia? Yeah, I mean, you make some great points here and the selective choice of data in order to uh, mm-hmm. promote an argument here is incredibly worrying. But if we separate the timing of this, the politicization of this, of course, the first day of the Republican National Committee this week, Elizabeth, I come back to the idea of doing no harm. Is there any suggestion of using this doing harm to patients versus making a judgment call that this is a wonder drug for treating them? You know, we don't know if we're doing harm or not until we've thoroughly studied it, and we haven't thoroughly studied it. Convalescent plasma, giving plasma from a survivor to a current patient, is generally thought of as being safe, that even if you're not helping them, you're probably not hurting them. But that hasn't been thoroughly studied, so we can't say that for sure. But to sort of flip that around for a minute, Julia, the question is, is are we really helping them? We don't know if we're really helping them. And without an FDA emergency use authorization, without it, plenty of people were getting this treatment. You didn't need this FDA authorization in order to give people convalescent plasma. More than 100,000 people in the United States have gotten convalescent plasma for COVID. He didn't need to make this move. He did it for the theatrics of it because it looks like, wow, look what I'm doing. I, Donald Trump, personally am saving people. More than 100,000 people got convalescent plasma without him making this move. He didn't need to do this. And therein lies the key. Elizabeth Cohen, Mm -hmm. thank you so much for that. Tencent adding billions of dollars in market value. Shares of the Chinese tech giant closing higher by almost 6% in Hong Kong. That's after a report suggested the risk of a U.S. ban on Tencent's app WeChat might be less than feared. It comes as another Chinese company, ByteDance, is preparing to sue the White House. Selena Wang is in Hong Kong for us. Wow, Selena, we're keeping you busy. There is a lot going on. So there's some degree of optimism, it seems, from investors in Tencent that perhaps there could be some carve out for U.S. businesses that rely on WeChat for targeting consumers, customers in China at least as far as reports are concerned. Talk us through who this might impact. Julia, yeah, a lot to unpack here. It seems that the Trump administration is realizing that an all-out ban on U.S. companies from working with WeChat would be devastating for these U.S. companies. Citing unnamed sources, this report from Bloomberg said that U.S. administration officials are privately reassuring U.S. companies that they can, in fact, still do business with WeChat in China. 
This is a major relief for Tencent, as you're seeing from the stock rally, but it's an even bigger relief for these U.S. corporates doing business in China. Julia, we've been talking about this for weeks now. WeChat is indispensable, not just for consumers, but also for businesses. This is a super app that is necessary for daily life, whether it's messaging, social payments, e-commerce, and for businesses, whether you're Walmart or Starbucks, you rely on WeChat to market and sell to the Chinese consumer. Apple, of course, has the most at stake here. It gets about a fifth of its sales from China. And had an all-out ban been instituted, it would have meant that Apple would have had to remove WeChat from its app stores in China. That would have been a major dent on its iPhone sales in China. Now, risks do still remain for these corporates in China until details on these executive order are released and Trump could still overrule anything that his senior administration officials decide on. And even though we are seeing this partial carve out potentially, as you noted, individuals in the U.S. would likely still face restrictions on using WeChat, which has major implications as well. It's necessary for people in the U.S. to interact with friends, family and business contacts in China. Yeah, but oh boy, imagine the lobbying going on for some of these U.S. businesses to say, hey, we still want to be able to use WeChat, even if you restrict broader use of it elsewhere. Uh, Selena, in the meantime, ByteDance biting back. I was dying to say that. What do we know about their apparent attempts to tackle the U.S. administration on uh, potential future restrictions too? We've been expecting this lawsuit to drop Mm. for quite some time. And over the weekend, ByteDance now officially saying they are going to sue the Trump administration. They could make an argument on the grounds that the Trump administration deprived it of its due process, that it violates the First Amendment. It could also try and contest that it does not, in fact, pose a national security risk. As you and I have talked about, most security experts say that the risk posed by TikTok is theoretical at this point, and the administration hasn't presented any concrete evidence. But the lawyers I've spoken to say that it is, it is highly unlikely that TikTok is going to succeed on any of those fronts. It is quite rare for the courts to review as sanctions imposed by IEPA, that's the International Economic Powers Act that the president used to invoke this ban. And when the courts have, they've been largely deferential to the U.S. government. At the same time, they're also unlikely to second guess the president's national security assertions. That's what they've said, according to these legal experts. At the same time, though, it is possible that TikTok and ByteDance are trying to drag this litigation out long enough for there to be a change in the administration, hoping for a change in the president. However, they've also noted that it is unlikely Biden withdraw this executive order. I do want to point out an interesting comment that one lawyer made to me, which is that the least obvious but most important part of this lawsuit is that it could maximize TikTok's value in a potential sale to a U.S. company because it raises doubts that this would be a fire sale, which then forces potential bidders like Microsoft or Oracle to come to the table with a sweeter deal. Oh, that's such a great point. If we're going to be sold, we're not going to go down without a fight here and uh, try and raise the value in the interim. Great point. Selena Wang, great to have you with us as always. Thank you. All right, these are uh, some of the other stories making headlines around the world. The U.S. Gulf Coast gearing up for not one but two dangerous storms. Marco was downgraded to a tropical storm, while tropical storm Laura is expected to strengthen into a hurricane. 
Both storms were previously forecast to strike the Louisiana coast as hurricanes within miles of each other. Let's get more on this from our meteorologist, Chad Myers. Chad, always great to have you with us. Just talk us through what to expect. Well, the first storm, Marco, is very close to New Orleans, within probably 100 kilometers. Uh, It will put down a lot of rainfall, but really only winds about 30 or 40 kph. Nothing all that significant. What we're going to watch is the heavy rainfall could be 50 to 100 millimeters of rain as it rolls on by. And everybody can handle that. But now here comes Laura, the storm that is just south of Cuba getting into the Gulf of Mexico. That water is 30 degrees C, some spots 31 and it's going to grow, and it's going to get much stronger. And we're looking at 165 kph storm or higher, really. This could certainly go higher than that because of that warm water. All the way down to the south of this area, guess what's there? U.S. oil offshore production. All of the rigs here in all of these colors here, those are the rigs that are going to have to be evacuated because you can't be standing on a rig at 165 kph. So we're going to watch that, certainly, as the storm tries to grow in intensity. Where we are now, we're not going to see too much here across the area from Marco. Marco is really just a a storm that's going to move on by. The rain showers are going to be very heavy, though. Certainly, some spots, 150 to 250 millimeters of rain is certainly likely. 500 is possible. So we'll keep watching all this. This is part of the U.S. agricultural belt, too. More rainfall falling on there. But we are watching the oil derricks for sure. Julia? We'll watch it with you. Chad, great to have you with us. Chad Myers there. Thank you. Thousands of firefighters are working tirelessly in California as almost 600 wildfires blaze on. At least four people have died and around 400,000 hectares have been burned. President Trump declared it a major disaster to release aid for the state's recovery. In a few hours' time, U.S. President Donald Trump will speak in the first of four nights of the Republican National Convention. President Trump is expected to lay out his plan for a second term in the White House as the event builds up to formally naming him as the party's 2020 candidate for president. The government in Belarus is warning protesters to maintain peace at demonstrations over a presidential election many see as legitimate. Illegitimate, my apologies. Independent observers have criticised the country's election as unfair and many in the international community are pushing for President Alexander Lukashenko to call a second vote. All right, so we're going to take a break here on First Move, but plenty more to come. It's peak summer vacation series season, but what have COVID staycations meant for the hotel industry? Trouble, I can tell you. Plus, a damaging audio recording of President Trump's sister, Released as the Republican Party kicks off its national convention, our preview of the RNC next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Hard to believe, but we're beginning the last full week of trading for August. Summer may be slipping away, but the rally on Wall Street remains red hot. We are talking fresh records for the S&P and the Nasdaq at the open. The S&P 500 is coming off its fourth straight week of gains, thanks to the continued rally in a handful of big tech names. As we've been discussing on a daily basis, it feels like oil also on the rise as the U.S. Gulf Coast braces for the first of two tropical storms. Almost 60% of the Gulf of Mexico's oil production has been shut down as a precaution. 45% of natural gas production to workers have been evacuated from more than 100 oil platforms. 
All right, returning to one of our top stories today and how effective is convalescent plasma treatment for COVID-19? President Trump and other officials say it could improve the survival rate of patients by some 35 percent. Now, that number appears to have come from a study by the Mayo Clinic, but the way it was conducted is not how doctors normally measure the benefits of a treatment because it wasn't a randomised, placebo-controlled clinical trial. And from the Mayo Clinic itself, we can now speak to Dr. William Maurice. He's president of Mayo Medical Laboratories, and he's going to help us understand the science here. Bill, great to have you on the show as always. We do like to challenge you early in the morning. I know you've done the biggest study and you've poured over, what, 70,000 patients who've uh, been treated via this method. But the lack of randomised study is a challenge here. What were your findings? Well, first of all, Julia, great to join you again. Uh, As always, a really uh, great opportunity to to be with you. Um, I think it's really important to go back to five months ago when we started the Expanded Access Programme. Uh, for convalescent plasma therapy for COVID patients. Uh, We know from from the history of medicine, really, going back to the use of uh, antitoxin to treat diphtheria patients at the turn of the century, uh, that this can be an effective therapy for the treatment of infectious diseases, where you take the plasma from one individual that's recovered from the disease and give it to another who is sick with the disease. So five months ago, what we wanted to do uh, with others was to make that therapy available to COVID patients uh, really designed to prove that it was safe, um, not designed to really to prove efficacy through a randomized clinical trial or controlled trial, as you referenced. So uh, that was the, the study design. It certainly accomplished that those aims and more. Uh, really, we were anticipating 5,000 or so patients being transfused and treated. Now, the, as you mentioned, over 70,000 have been treated. Um, and we know from the data that the treatment is safe. It's more challenging to prove that the treatment is actually effective or efficacious. And so that's what's taken a little bit longer. Um, but it's really because of the way the study was designed. Um, and it was designed with the urgency of the pandemic in mind. And this is a crucial point because whether it's a vaccine or a treatment, everybody wants to firstly save lives. The president also clearly wants to look like action is being taken and, and benefits are being had by those impacted here. I'm going to put you on the spot here and say, was this announcement in your mind politicized? Well, I think it's confusing to people because uh, the medical community as a whole is really trying to rise to the challenge of of the pandemic, which has overwhelmed the globe. Uh, So here, I, I think what we wanted to do was strike a note of caution before we said that the therapy had effect on patients. We knew it was safe or affect poor patients. And so that took longer. Um, and But while we are confident and the FDA is confident that they can issue EUA, because when we look back at those 70,000 patients, we can see there is a positive effect of the treatment. Um, of course, this kind of now announcement comes in the backdrop of election season. And what has really become more and more of a charged topic in general uh, for society, for all the other effects of, of economic shutdown and and social distancing and all those those impacts those are having on our lives so it does come in a very charged background but i don't know the the decision itself was founded in science you believe it was yes i do okay so maybe the best thing to do here is for the fda just to publish the data and say look this is what we based our decision on to try and cut through some of the noise and the fears here and the selective use of pieces of data perhaps that would be the answer yeah, well, I think that it is the answer really is in 
and good transparency from all the decision makers and how the data is being used. And and that's not to criticize per se. The other the other facet of this, to your point, is that this all of these decisions are of great economic and societal importance, and so they're really in the crucible of public scrutiny. And so that's something that just the medical community, as well as just the, the healthcare community and the, and the and the global community, is really not used to. So um, I think that does lead to some confusion. Uh, but we'll 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 work through that. I mean, that's really why it's important now that this has received DUA that we you know we help people understand why the process took as long as it did and what's the information behind it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I also want to ask you something else as well about testing. The recent ruling by uh, the U.S. Health Department on tests not needing to go to the FDA, to the regulators first. Again, there seems to be a conflict between the health department and the the FDA, that the regulator here, which again goes to the point that we're discussing here, which people aren't all on the same page and we need them on the same page in order to foster trust, whether it's a, a treatment or an approach to tackling this virus. Well, at Mayo Clinic Labs, and like many and all labs, really, uh, we are committed to providing patients the diagnostic testing that they need. Uh, and we really appreciate clarity of guidance from the government and how they want us to approach doing that. Uh, clearly, the ability of laboratories to create tests for patient needs is an important facet of how we provide care. Uh, we appreciate the HHS ruling recognizing that, but we'll continue to work, uh, Mayo Clinic Labs and, and the lab community will continue to work with regulators to, to gain that clarity here going forward. Okay, but to, to sum up our conversation, because I do think it's really important that we, we've had this conversation at this moment, the Mayo Clinic believes that using convalescent plasma is safe, but the studies that you've done does not prove efficacy, but it's a safety thing we can be talking about here. Well, it is safe, and actually I do think that, this, that the data now analyzed does show a positive effect for patients as well. So we know it is efficacious as well. It's taken longer to make that observation just because of the way the study was designed. The other challenge with this, Julia, is that the study was designed to give the patients who needed the therapy the therapy. Many of the hospitals giving that therapy were overwhelmed with patients. And so therefore it took longer to get the information back in terms of how those patients have responded. So it's really not even just a design, it's just the fact that the entire uh, country was trying to manage the pandemic and those giving the therapies were right in, in the crosshairs or in the crucible uh, of the pandemic and managing patients. So it's just taken a bit longer, but there is efficacy as well. Okay, so important to chat to you. Thank you so much because uh, you had a very short notice on, on this interview. So I'm great to have you with us as always and get your wisdom, uh, Dr. Bill Maurice there from the Mayo Clinic. Thank you. Thank you. All right, the opening bell, next. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks kicking off the new week with fresh gains. Stocks rallying across the board with the S&P and the Nasdaq both at all-time highs. Important to note here, though, as we watch stocks continuing to rise, 
U.S. Treasury yields have not been moving much higher, which you should expect in healthy markets. That's a sign, I think, that bond investors, perhaps not as enthusiastic about the economic rebound as stock investors or reacting less well to stimulus. Let's be clear. Record low long-term yields, of course, have helped fuel a strong recovery in the housing market to cheap mortgage rates. That said, CNN's new Back to Normal index shows the U.S. economy operating at only 78 percent of its full capacity as of August 19th. The state's colored darker green are in a better state on an economic basis than other parts of the country. Now, the sun may be setting on the peak holiday season here in the United States, but it's not been a summer that most hotel owners will remember fondly. The American Hotel and Lodging Association says occupancy near outdoor vacation spots is around 50 percent compared with normal levels at this time of year, which would be around 90 percent. It says the situation in cities is worse with little recovery in sight. As bills come due and bookings remain weak, many hoteliers are at risk of defaulting on their debts. The financial analysts, TREP, say repayment arrears in the sector were at an all-time high last month. Nearly one in four borrowers were at least a month late with payments. Industry leaders are calling on Congress to provide urgent help. The CEO of the American Hotel and Lodgings Association, Chip Rogers, joins us on the show. Chip, always great to have you with us. That's just painted a picture of an ongoing and incredibly challenging environment. Yeah, it is a bleak picture indeed. Uh, We do hope that since everyone is now beginning to work remotely, that in fact, uh, we can maybe extend summer another month. Uh, The weather should be good. Uh, But but even with that, um, we're facing significant headwinds here. And as you pointed out, um, this debt problem is is the largest of all, because um, if you can't make your payments, ultimately you lose your business and everybody that works for you no longer has a job. I want to go to the silver linings a bit first, actually, and then we'll talk about the debt situation, which clearly is incredibly worrying. Given that people are embarking on staycations or tending to stay within states and traveling less due to many of the state by state restrictions, to your point, could we actually see people perhaps extending their vacations or staying longer or pushing that out back towards the end of the year as well? Might that provide some respite? It will provide a little. In fact, we're already seeing some of those trends and uh, we're beginning to see people stay on Sunday nights into Monday a lot more than we used to uh, because they don't have to necessarily get back to the office on Monday. Uh, We're beginning to people see uh, show up for their weekend vacations uh, on Thursday as opposed to Friday. So some of that is helping. Um, This idea, of course, that you can work from anywhere is the key uh, to that continuing on. And then, of course, children not necessarily going back to school all across the country uh, helps as well. So there are some bright signs out there. But in general, the big problem is no business travel, no conventions and conferences and large meetings. And that's what's really hurting the industry. Chip, how many workers, to your point, have these hotels managed to bring back on average? Well, we brought back... uh, a healthy percentage of them. I mean, if you if you look at where we were back in February at a full employment with about 900,000 job openings, and then you go to about uh, mid-July where we probably had 4 million people not working, uh, maybe of those people not working, 20 to 25% have come back. But the bottom line is this, as we look at our economy, uh, you talked about the CNN index there a minute ago, and, and unemployment's a big part of that. We see that our economy back in January had a three and a half percent unemployment rate. It's now at about ten and a half percent in the hotel industry. It's over 40 percent. And that's the big problem. Wow. A 40 percent unemployment rate. Yeah. 
shocking. Yeah. It is completely shocking. I guess not unexpected, though. We know that you were on the front lines of uh, hit initially and, of course, going to be one of the last to recover because people have to get their confidence back and be willing to, to stay away from home. Talk to me about foreclosure risk. If we're talking about such a high proportion of, of hotels being unable to pay their debts, how many of these could close permanently? Well, as you mentioned a moment ago, TREP has already indicated that we're at an all-time high with delinquency rates for commercial mortgage-backed securities, which is about a third of all the hotel debt out there. The traditional lending will soon follow. Don't, I mean, there was some flexibility as we began uh, this pandemic back in March and April, uh, but banks can only offer flexibility for so long. So we're already beginning to see some of the foreclosures. Uh, it could mount into the thousands of hotels by the end of the year if, in fact, nothing is done. And the sad thing is with the Main Street Lending Act, which has frankly not been used at all and has been a failure up to this point, the money is there if they would simply change the rules and allow these commercial mortgage loans to give access to it. It's a sad situation because we know the money's appropriated. And therein lies the key. The money's there. It's just about access. Chip, what needs to change? Well, under the current rules, if you want to go get a Main Street Lending loan, which is very low interest, long term loan that can help you survive this. Um, you can't really have any debt. Well, if you're in the commercial, if you have a commercial mortgage, if you're in an office building or a large hotel, you're going to have debt because that's your business and you have this large structure on a, on a really prime piece of property. And so if they would change the rules like traditional lending rules that, that allow debt all the time on these structures, um, then hotels and, and commercial office buildings, they could gain access to this Main Street lending. They would pay the money back. It would work out great and it would save thousands of hotels and possibly hundreds of thousands of jobs. Yeah, we were talking about this on the uh, the show last week about a potential uh, real estate crisis or a brewing challenge for this sector in particular. And you're pointing to one of the pivotal elements here and, and changes do need to be made. Chip, have you had any response very quickly? You're clearly saying that this is the help we need. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, uh, we've asked Treasury again and again and again to help out. We believe they're looking at it. But even better than that, Congress has introduced legislation, a bipartisan bill called the HOPE Act, that would do exactly what the commercial uh, mortgage uh, borrowers need right now, this lifeline to gain access to funds just to pay their bills. Yeah, well, we'll keep fingers crossed. Chip, great to have you on the show as always. So Chip Rogers, so CEO of the American Hotel and Lodgings Association. Great to have you with us. All right, coming up on First Move as the Republican National Convention kicks off. President Trump's senior advisor, Kellyanne Conway, announcing she will leave the White House. Potential impact on the Trump campaign and a preview of this week's RNC. Straight ahead. back to first move. Last week it was the Democrats. This week it's the Republicans. We're on day one of the Republican National Convention. President Trump expected to make an appearance every night of the event this week. His formal acceptance speech is scheduled for Thursday. Republican strategist and CNN political commentator Doug Hyde joins us now. Doug, fantastic to have you on the show. What can we expect from the Republicans this week and what does success look like for President Trump? Well, I think you've outlaid it already of what we can expect. We're going to expect a lot of Donald Trump. We're going to expect a lot of his family. I was surprised, you know, having having worked on the um, setup for the 2012 convention and this one being in my old hometown of Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, on what we would see from speakers and, and so forth. It is very heavy laden with Trump loyalists. Now, that's not a real surprise. It's true of the Democrats as well. But this is 
just doubling down on the base in every way possible. The opposite of the Democrats, which tried to get really bipartisan, popular Americans uh, to to address their the audience so they could reach out to new voters. I looked at the roster from the RNC this time, and, and it was a bit like looking at the schedule for Glastonbury and realizing there's not a single band that anybody really wants to see. <laughs> what an analogy. Uh, you pointed out the laser-like focus on the base here. But, you know, if I look at um, the need to break through with things like college-educated women, for example, um, he's got to make the party himself look reasonably moderate this week, surely. Is any of that possible, given our Glastonbury-style lineup? No, I don't think it is. And in part, yeah. that's because it's just been announced this morning that there really is no Republican uh, platform this time. They're not really codifying any policies or ideals other than um, everything being Trump centric. So, you know, you talk about college educated women. They're not talking about real issues that are going to affect them. They're not talking about higher education, which is a real issue right now in the country as we're dealing with remote learning that countries like 2U um, are struggling with. We're not talking about the other end of education, child care, where Child Care Aware of America is saying that there is no economic recovery if we don't have child care. And you can go on a whole litany um, of issues where the Republican Party just doesn't have an organizing document on that, which traditionally they do every four years, as do to the Democrats. Ducky's job approval rating is underwater by, what, 10 percentage points plus. It's hard to win another term, surely, if the majority of people already think you're doing a bad job, unless you can paint a picture of the alternative doing a worse job than you're doing. Can he do that for a future President Biden, for the Democratic Party? Surely he'll try. He'll try, but it's complicated. Um, and, and it's complicated for two reasons. One, if you look at a lot of the rhetoric that's coming from the president and his campaign right now, they're talking about violence in the streets and what it would look like under Joe Biden's America. The challenge there is we're in Donald Trump's America, and that's happening right now. The other challenge is, you know, which we haven't talked about, is the biggest issue in, in the country and really the world right now with COVID. Um, Donald Trump now under, under his watch, 170,000 plus deaths an economy, as you just highlighted, where no one is staying in hotels, nobody is, is taking flights. Um, I haven't stayed in a hotel in six months, um, for that matter. And so he's not really addressing those issues where Joe Biden can talk about tweeting last year that the United States um, is not ready at all for a pandemic. The administration isn't ready for this. So it's very hard for Trump to be able to credibly bring, it, bring Biden down. Maybe the best per person to bring Biden down would be Joe Biden. And it's why those three debates are going to be so much massively more important than even what we saw when it was uh, Trump versus Clinton. Yeah, it's such an important point. And I think the tone from the Democrats was somber and frightening. And it's tough to be an optimist if you, you bring it back to uh, the pandemic. Uh, unfortunately, I do want to talk about something on a bit of a tangent, but incredibly important. And I think bewildering for an international audience is the focus that we've seen on the post office, the importance of being able to mail in vote in this election and the underfunding. I was looking at some of the numbers. The post office lost $83 billion since 2006, which is one issue. But how concerned should we be about fraud? Because the president argues it's a huge issue. Well, we, we shouldn't be worried about the issue of fraud. We should be worried about what's happening with the post office, full disclosure. I expected a package from the post office yesterday that still hasn't arrived. And in this context, I'm a little nervous about it. But I have right here, Julia, uh, a mailer that was sent to me this weekend and it says, urgent notice, safely, uh, securely and safely request your absentee ballot. It's from the North Carolina Republican Party. Now, one of two things has happened with that. Either they're sending that to somebody who hasn't been registered to vote 
in North Carolina, me, since 2004, or this was meant for my deceased father, who uh, died just after the election in, in 2016. And the, the challenge with that is not only are they potentially asking somebody to vote who can't vote, but the last time I had dinner with my father before he passed away, he said that he was voting for Trump, but he sure wished Joe Biden was running so that he could vote for Joe Biden. And I bet there are a lot more independent uh, North Carolina voters and voters in other states who feel that same way. Just to be clear, Doug, and uh, we're sorry for the loss of your father, could somebody fill in that form and send it back then? Uh, it, it's possible. I honestly, I haven't opened this, but voter fraud is something that, yes, it exists, but has been really um, blown up as an issue in a way that uh, is now an existential fear for especially Republicans when it just doesn't really work out that way. It is a, it is a concern, but it's, it's always been a minor concern, and I think that's where it should be with sometimes some effect in local races, but nationally has not been a real concern, frankly, since 1960. Wow. Always great to have you on the show. I'm just trying to think of it. To sum up, we've been to Glastonbury. We've talked about potential voter fraud. Um, he hired, I believe, people that he worked with on The Apprentice to produce this uh, RNC this week. So um, more reality show, I guess, is what we have to look ahead to. Oh, is he frozen? You can hear me. I don't know. Doug, great to have you with us. (laughs) He was waiting for the punchline. It wasn't coming. Doug, hi. Great to have you with us. Uh, Republican strategist and CNN political commentator. Thank you for that. All right. The U.S. Postmaster General back in the hot seat on Capitol Hill, as we were discussing this time, testifying before a Democratic-led House committee where he's likely to face a much different reception. We'll have a live report straight ahead. show U.S. Democrats want to know why the Postmaster General isn't reversing changes he made at the Postal Service that they say could sabotage the presidential election. In around an hour, Louis DeJoy will testify before a Democratic-led House panel. He's expected to face questions on widespread mail delays that have been reported since he took over in June. On Friday, DeJoy assured a Republican-led committee that mail-in ballots will be counted in time for the election. A day later, House Democrats held a rare session to approve legislation that would suspend the changes DeJoy has put in place and provide the post office with a $25 billion boost. CNN's Kristen Holmes joins us now from Washington. Kristen, great to have you with us. The tone likely to be very different today. What can we expect? Well, that's right, Julia. And first of all, I just wanted to note quickly on that $25 billion from uh, for USPS that was voted on by the House. A- That is likely to not go anywhere. The White House has already issued a veto threat, uh, and the Senate is not expected to take it up. And the reason why that is interesting is because it was not a partisan bill. There were dozens of Republicans who signed on for that. And right now, given the current climate, that's actually pretty bipartisan for Washington. So something to note there as they continue to hash out this funding for the Postal Service. Uh, But as you said, it is expected to be a completely different vibe today. We are talking about a House a Democratic-led House committee. It's expected to be a more hostile reception. And remember, it was just last week that 90 of these House Democrats were actually calling for the removal of DeJoy as Postmaster General. And you started to outline this, what exactly it is that House Democrats want to know about. They want to know about those changes in detail. How exactly did DeJoy arrive at them? Cutting over 
overtime, uh, cutting post office hours, the removal of those high volume sorting machines. They want to know why they're not all being reversed. Of course, we know DeJoy had suspended those changes ahead of the election. But he also said in Friday's testimony that any of these machines that have been unplugged or disconnected would not be reconnected because it's not needed. So Democrats are going to have questions about that, particularly as we head into this election where millions of Americans, many of them for the first time, are expected to vote by mail. Uh, The other big topic is Secretary Treasury Steve Mnuchin. CNN has reported that the Board of Governors actually briefed Mnuchin before the appointment of DeJoy. And we are told by sources that this is not a normal procedure. We also heard from a former Board of Governors member who resigned because of Mnuchin's involvement. He was worried uh, that the Trump administration was trying to politicize the Postal Service. So that is likely to come up today. And Julia, we should note that the Postmaster General has said time and time again that the Postal Service is absolutely ready for this influx of mail-in ballots come November. But when they talk about the numbers, when they walk through them, they try to reassure the American public. They say things like, and this is a tweet from the Postal Service, that if all Americans vote by mail this year, 330 million ballots over the course of the election would be only 75% of what we deliver in a single day. But Julia, as we noted, we're here because what they're delivering in a single day has been extremely delayed. Yes, extremely delayed understatement, I think. Kristen Holmes, it's going to be an interesting morning. Thank you so much for that. Now, 2020 has given us things that will be forever defined by this year. The pandemic, murder hornets, remember those? And yes, even mystery cubes found in the English city of Coventry. Well, now we have something new. Watch it if you can bear it. This was during a baseball game between the Arizona Diamondbacks and the Oakland A's. And even though the shot was unintentional, Oh, the poor bear. It feels like something very cruel after everything this year. Giant cutouts or stuffed toys are sometimes used at big events to help make the seats look full. No word yet on how the bear's doing, but we do know they are the strong and silent type. I think the bear survived. It's fine, but ouch. All right, that's it for the show. You've been watching First Move. I'm Julia Chatterley. Stay safe. We'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.